Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Sexual immorality is no longer even considered a thing. And it's exactly what we're talking about here. It's the mixing with the nations. And it's the sapping of the spiritual strength. And nobody even realizes it. Man, I don't know what's going on. I, I love God, but my life's a mess. But i involved in this and I do that. And I know those things are probably not exactly what God will want me to do, but I'm, I'm sure he's okay with it. No, he's not okay with it. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Hosea chapters 1 through 7. Now, here's Pastor Brian. As crazy as it is in the United States of America, think about how crazy it was in Israel. I mean, these people, we, we have theories. We have theories about the existence of our nation, how it came into existence. A lot of people, you know, the providence of God brought America into being so it could be a light, a city on a hill. You know, there's all of these kinds of theories. They might be right. They might not be right about the founding of the country. But, and whether they're right or not, we, we're baffled to think, how could the country be so far removed from God? Well, this country here was literally established by God, handpicked, pulled out of Egypt, brought to the Red Sea, and miraculously established in the land, and they have no faith in God. So my point is simply this, why are we shocked? that things are the way they are in the nation that we live in. If the very people of God could come to a place where they had no love, no acknowledgement, no desire to follow God, then why would we think that it would be any different with us? I mean, it's just, it's human nature to turn against the Lord. It's human nature to pursue our own will and to shun the will of God. Now, Here's a passage that I think many will remember. It's one of the oft-quoted passages from Hosea. Look at verse 6. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. How many have heard that passage before? It's a common one. And, of course, it's spoken, this is the context, it's spoken to the nation. But it, it, in principle, it's true for everyone, not just for Israel. People are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Not knowledge in general, but of course the reference here is knowledge of God. It's astounding to me where people go when they reject God, personally and collectively. You know, as as we see a collective rejection of God in the culture, and, and look at where things are going. And the direction is really, in the end, if it's not stopped in some way, it will end in destruction. Because when we refuse the knowledge of God, when we refuse to listen to God, when we refuse to take his commands seriously, then inevitably it will be our demise. It will bring anyone down. That's, that's, where, that's only where it can lead. And so... 
He goes on, because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. So again, see, the knowledge is specific. It's the knowledge of God. The priests were the ones who were responsible to teach the people the knowledge of God. And so because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest. And this is something that has always been a reality that even within the people of God, you have those in positions of leadership who actually reject God and lead people in the rejection of God. But I mean, here's, here's, it's just exactly this thing. The priests, the leaders, sadly, are oftentimes the ones who are compromising and then leading the rest of God's people astray. And so everyone is going to end up being destroyed because of the lack of knowledge, but it starts often at the top. It's, it's, it's sad, and it happens over and over again. Uh, verse 17 is an interesting one here in chapter 4. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. Ephraim is the, is the other name for Israel, the northern kingdom. And so God says he's joined to his idols. Leave him alone. In other words, there's nothing that can be done any longer. Man, when the Lord says that about somebody, that is, that is not anything anybody ever wants to hear. Leave them alone. That they have so embraced their sin, they've so embraced their idolatry, that there actually is no turning back at this point. That's where Ephraim was. There was nothing that could be done to dissuade them from their course. And so God is basically just saying, I'm done. Now, thank God he suffers long with us. Thank God he continues to track us down. He continues to convict us of sin. He continues to, to seek to lure us in. He woos us. He Sometimes he deals with us. Sometimes he chastens us. But it's all to bring us back in. But when there is that resistance that just becomes sealed in stone, then, then what can God do? Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. Now, the sixth chapter. This is interesting here. And... Here in chapter 6, let me pick up in verse 14 of chapter 5. So look at verse 14. It says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair, or lair as a lion would, or I will return to my place until they have borne their guilt and seek my face, in their misery, they will earnestly seek me. So God is saying, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to judge them like a, I'm going to tear them apart like a lion would. And then I'm going to go back to my place 
until they have borne their guilt, or another translation is until they admit their guilt. Until they admit their guilt and seek my face. So now, chapter 6 is a continuation. This is now the response of the people to that in the future. But look at what it says. It says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. So now this is after the judgment comes. And now the people are saying, we're going to, let's return to the Lord. But here's where it's really interesting. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Now, this is the mystery. What is, what is the two days? What is the three days? What is that even referring to? And there's nothing historically that you could point to and say it's talking about two or three literal days and there was a point in time and this is when it happened. So it seems like there's that two or three days is maybe representative of something other than two or three literal days. And some have speculated, and I think with good reason, perhaps, that the days are referring to like the days of the Psalms, where a day to the a thousand years is a day to the Lord, and a, a day is a thousand years. So, if you think of it like that, and it might be, and it might not be, but if it's not that, then. Who knows what it is? (laughs) Nobody knows what it is if it's not that. So we can either go with what it might be or we can go with absolutely, we don't have a clue what it is. So so let's go with the, this might be it. So after two days, he will revive us. So this is the thought. The thought is that the two days representing, you know, the 2000 year period. So that there would be roughly 2000 year period period between the rejection of Jesus by the nation and the restoration of the nation by Jesus when he comes and they accept him. So if you look at it like that, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. So the picture here could be that of after 2,000 years, the Lord coming and restoring the people. And now on the third day, after his return, the third day would be a reference to the next thousand years, which would be the millennial kingdom. So maybe that's what it's talking about. We don't really know, but it sounds good to me. I mean, I, I like, I like the, the idea there that, that it might be that. And, I mean, that is the picture. The thing is, we don't know. I mean, obviously, we don't know for sure that that's what it means. And we don't know that 2,000 years is the appointed time. I mean, we, we think it is because we're, we're there. We're 2,000 years out. And it looks like, wow, it looks like things could really, you know, within our generation or maybe the next or something, it looks like everything could finally come to a climax, So because of the way we see things, where we see ourselves at, it it seems like this might be the right way to understand it. But again, we, we can't say for certain because we don't know. But 
it very well could be. You know, some, some have said this, and I think there's, I think there's some, something to it, that you've got six days and then you've got the seventh day. So in six days, the Lord created the heaven and the earth. Seventh day, he rested. So some people have taken that and taken a day as a thousand years and, and looked at that as basically, you know, seven is, is the number of completion. So this is the complete cycle of the human experience from the beginning of Adam to the end of the millennial reign of Christ and the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. So you've got 6,000 years, roughly, of history from the time of Adam. And then you go into the 1,000-year reign of Christ. And so from Adam to Abraham, basically 2,000 years. From Abraham to Christ, 2,000 years. From Christ to today, 2,000 years. And so... You know, give or take. I mean, it, you know, you can't be precise with these years because, I mean, it's roughly 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, it seems, looking at the chronology in Scripture. And it's roughly 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ. But again, these are, you know, they're not, they're not precise numbers. But, I mean, it does sound like it could be the case. I mean, doesn't that, that kind of make sense? Six and one, God has that pattern. So maybe it's six and one for not just the beginning of creation, but maybe this is the pattern that God has designated for human history itself. But again, we don't know. So these are interesting things to think about. You just can't be dogmatic about them because, you know, it's just it doesn't exactly say that. But it could say something like that. And one day we will find out. That's the thing we can say for sure. We will find out one day if we were, if we were onto something or maybe we completely missed it. So after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. And listen to this. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. Now, I read this the other day, and I said to Cheryl, I have never seen this verse ever. And then she started singing, as surely as the sun will rise. I go, oh, yeah, that sounds like that. But the reason why I've never seen it is because the the New King James translates it differently. And so this is the NIV translation, but I thought this is, but isn't that great, though? I mean, just think about it. What a great word. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. And that's a great, that's just a great thing to think about. That's a great thing to know. People all worried about life and worried about the world and what's going on and what's going to happen. Hey, I don't know any of that stuff, but this is what I know. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. It's certain he's going to come. There's no question about it. So I like that. I'm going to hold on to that translation there. And so a couple more things. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. That's how their love was. It was temporary. You know, like how you go out in the morning and the grass is wet, the dew on the grass, you know, maybe at seven o'clock, 
but you go back out at 11 o'clock and it's gone, it's dried up. That's what God's saying. That's, how, that's what their love was toward him. And then verse six, a passage that we're familiar with from the New Testament, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So they would revert to the ritual and they would try to justify themselves through the ritual. It's like, hey, well, we're offering you sacrifices. But yet they were living completely inconsistently with the way God wanted them to live. And Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Remember the Pharisees, they were merciless. They had no mercy on anybody, but they were very rigid about their adherence to the law. So Jesus quotes Hosea to them. Now, chapter seven, and this will be our last one here. We'll just look at just a verse or two here. But again, here we have, the reason I, I'm not you know, reading over this, we, we've been through the prophets and the message is, is pretty much the same thing over and over again. It's God just indicting them and re-indicting them and reminding them of their sins and so forth. And we've, we've, we've seen that. But verse eight and nine are the verses that I wanna just focus on here. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. So the problem was they're mixing with the nations. And it was their their love for the other nations and wanting to be like the other nations. It was that that was killing them, but they couldn't even see it. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day and he was telling me about some friends. And, and this, this is a guy who recently in the last, you know, several months, God has just really got a hold of his life in an extraordinary way, a powerful way. And delivered him from a lot of stuff. And, you know, he's just now, he's at this place where he's so passionate and committed and seeking the Lord. And, you know, God's doing a good work in his life. And as a result of that, God's using him to connect with old friends and family members and people. But he was telling me the other day that he was talking to someone, an acquaintance of his, who basically is kind of doing what what Ephraim was doing here. He's saying, well, I love the Lord, but he's entangled in all kinds of behavior and activity that God has clearly stated in his word that we're not to be entangled in. But here's the thing. He can't figure out why he's just so miserable all the time. He can't figure out why nothing's working out. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not even realize what's happening. And that, that's what happens when we, the people of God, when we embrace the things that God has said for us to not be involved in. You know, it's crazy because, you know, seriously, I, I can't believe how nuts things have gone so quickly. And 
here's, here's just an example of what I'm talking about. So a very common thing right now, and any single woman in this room probably knows this by experience. A common thing right now is, I've heard this over and over again. You're asked out on a date by a Christian guy. You go out for dinner or whatever you do. And then there is the question about, well, when can we go to bed? And thinking somehow that, well, that's okay. I mean, you know, if we're going to get married, we've got to make sure we're compatible and we've got to make sure we're sexually compatible. So we've got to go to bed before we get married so we can figure that out and then maybe we can get married. How is it that we have come to such a backward, distorted way of thinking? And this isn't isolated. This isn't like a couple of, you know, weird people. This is becoming more and more the common experience. So the highly sexualized culture that we live in is now just coming to the church in such a way that sexual immorality is no longer even considered a thing. Everybody does it. It's just the normal thing. And it's exactly what we're talking about here. It's the mixing with the nations. And it's the sapping of the spiritual strength. And nobody even realizes it. Man, I don't know what's going on. I I love God, but my life's a mess. But I'm involved in this and I do that. And I know those things are probably not exactly what God would want me to do, but I'm I'm sure he's okay with it. No, he's not okay with it. And we can't keep living that way. Because if we go on and on and on and on and on like that, then inevitably a judgment comes. The judgment is meant to turn us around. But why even press it to that place? I mean, why do that? Why not just say, okay, I I want to get things right. So as we see here, unfortunately, Israel is just, they've gone to the point of no return and they don't even realize what's happened to them. God help us that that doesn't happen to us. Now, I want to close by going back to just the, the first chapter here. And I want to, again, I want us to just think for a minute about the amazing love of God. Go marry a promiscuous woman, have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. But then chapter three, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. And all of that to say as we wrap it up, the love of God is, it's it's inconceivable in, in so many ways because it's it's contrary to everything that we would think. Join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. Hi, Pastor Brian here, and it is almost Christmas. And of course, this is a time of year when everybody is aware of 
this holiday. They're hearing Christmas music as they're out shopping. And yet not everyone knows what Christmas is truly all about. So we have a great offer for you for this month. It's a small book, and it's entitled, Is Christmas Unbelievable? It's written by Rebecca McLaughlin, who is an excellent writer and has so many good things to say here. Really a great little book to give to a friend, a neighbor, a family member at this time of the year. So I would encourage you to pick up your copy of Is Christmas Unbelievable by Rebecca McLaughlin. Again, this month's resource is a book titled, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four questions everyone should ask about the world's most famous story by Rebecca McLaughlin. You can order the book, It's Christmas Unbelievable, by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it, and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Four questions everyone should ask about the world's most famous story by Rebecca McLaughlin to help equip you to defend the faith. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Hosea. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.